Hosting for With the First Link on the Trek Geeks Podcast Network is brought to you by Fansets, creators of cool pins and memorabilia from your favorite franchises. Visit fansets.com and use code TREKGEEKS, all capital letters, for your exclusive 10% discount. Hello and welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series, one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through an anti-oppression, pro-diversity, anti-racist lens. I'm Ruthie cowper Samoshi. And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about evolution. This episode was written by Michael Piller and Michael I. Wagner, and directed by Winrich Colby. It first aired on September 23rd, 1989. We're almost out of the 80s. We're almost out of the 80s. Just a few more months. In this episode, we uh, meet the eminent Paul Stubbs. And Paul Stubbs. We get to see all of his anxieties around living up to his potential. So That's I right. thought that for today's check-in, we would talk about the anxiety about not living up to our potential. Were you a wonderkindin, as he says in the show? There's a there's a meme I've seen about this now, but like how all the quote unquote gifted kids are now just like burnt out adults. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, so you mean you have anxiety? Yeah, no, I. That's uh, it's very familiar. I was definitely like, I was good at things that were highly valued. I don't want to say like I was super smart because there were a lot of people who were able to do things that I was not able to do, and like, but I was good at things that the people around me valued and so I came to expect that I should just be good at things and anything that I wasn't good at was either like not worth doing or that just meant that I was a failure and a horrible person. One of the things I I really like this character because I feel like he's a great warning that I need to heed often because he's got this um this twisted sense of obsession and he's so obsessed about like this one thing and if it doesn't work out, like he's basically going to implode. But I feel like we we celebrate this kind of personality and this kind of behavior, that kind of like toxic genius that just has to be placated yeah. because whatever it is that they are going to bring to the world is so important. And I feel like there's pushback against that now. Like I see that in uh, in industry, in the gaming community about like that that sort of toxic writing genius that it's like, you know what, we actually don't need you because... We've created this association between that toxicity and productivity that we're, yeah. I think we're saying is not actually, it's a false binary or a false association. I'm pretty sure we've talked about this in episodes before, but the idea of like, I'm so smart that regular rules don't apply to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he, he kind of feels that way. Like, I am so smart and my research is so important that the lives of the crew and anyone else who lives on this ship, you know, it is expendable compared to my work and my research. Yeah. Or, you know, to maybe not quite so drastic an example in real life, like other people's mental health and safety yeah. and comfort in the workplace yeah. is not as important because, well, we have we have that one guy and he's able to do all this stuff. And I say guy intentionally because I don't, like, if anyone else behaved this way, if we're a woman or a person of color, no one would tolerate it. No. And I think it's because the belief is, well, they're not going to produce the same quality of work as the white toxic genius. So 
it's okay that they behave that way. Yeah, and there's also a certain idea of like if a white straight cis guy with a lot of money acts this way, you know, we have all of these reasons for it. It's because of, you know, there's just so much pressure on them or either they're just so brilliant they can't be expected to behave properly. I don't know, maybe they had a tragic backstory or something. But if they're if they're from like any marginalized communities in any way, that's always the reason for their poor behavior or their unkindness or right, their lack right, of yeah. care. There's not an, the same excuse that's given. I, I also like I empathize with Stubbs as as a tragic character in the sense that I also recognize that there are times where this is something I'm really trying to work through. Because I struggle often with executive function as a person who is very suspicious that they have ADHD, not not diagnosed, but very suspect, Yeah, is that it's often so hard for me to work on something unless I'm like hyper fixated on it. And sometimes that can be a joyous thing, but sometimes it can be obsessive and awful. But it's like the only way for me to get through whatever mental barriers exist to get me to do work. I've been trained because this is a narrative that I've heard in my life and it's, I've also been recreated myself. Is that like, unless you're obsessed or unless you're like in pain, there's no joy at the end. Like the joy comes at the end. You can't enjoy the journey and the process. You can't just like let kind of hold that loosely. It's got to always be this obsessive, like, rah, like pour myself into it to the, to the fault of everything or to the exclusion of anything else and all people and other considerations. Yeah. And it's not good. And I'm, I'm trying to deprogram that for myself because I often find I won't just let myself enjoy process and just try stuff that's really nice when you're able to do that but it can be very hard there was a time in my life when I was like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna try new things and I'm gonna try to enjoy not being good at things and being like like having things be new to me it didn't last super long not because I was like not able to enjoy it but just because like I had other stuff to focus on and I couldn't you know take on all these like new projects and stuff like that but it, it can be really nice to be like new at something and not good at it right away and to have to work at it and learn to be a bit better. And yeah, that process can be really joyous. But I feel like for myself, I just can have so much pressure and I feel like when I'm not good at something right away, I feel so embarrassed and I feel like yeah. I'm going to be letting people down. Usually I won't be like if I were to ever stop and think about it, I would know that that's not the case. And most people around me would be very understanding of me messing up or not being perfect at something. Yeah. I don't know. One of the things that for some reason, I think this is like societally, I don't think this is just me and you. I think that this is kind of broader. Like we kind of frame trying as this like very pathetic thing like if you are caught trying something that's like the most embarrassing thing in the world but like that's ridiculous it is it's ridiculous and, I, and i'm thinking back now that we we kind of had a similar conversation uh in two episodes ago when we talked about data being locked in his corners and picard oh, yeah. coming by and telling him that it's like you can make you can commit no errors and still lose and we had mentioned that the yoda philosophy of do or do not is actually kind of silly yes now, Stubbs says in this episode, he can live with failure. It's the, the 
the point is that he didn't even get a chance to try. But I don't know if that's actually true about him. I, I noticed that, but he does correct himself. He says, I could live with failure. And then he says, well, maybe. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he could live with failure. With failure, yeah. So yeah, this obsessive nature of things. And, and, and I think me believing that or having been told or exposed to this idea that obsession is the only way to make like greatness for like true success. But it's some, it comes at such personal cost. And I think that great achievements can still be made out of people just like enjoying something and just sharing the joy and the work that comes as a result of that joy of just enjoying yeah. something. And so I need to keep like letting myself believe that when I'm enjoying the process of something, that is still productive. Right. That is still work. And even though there might not be some like grandiose accomplishment at the end of it or or in the same way, it's just like, yeah, if I'm working on a photo and a photo editing process, I used to think of that as like, oh, this is just like a hobby. It's not real work, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, no, I, I love it. It doesn't feel as tedious to me as other things. And then that's okay. It's okay yeah. to just enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Have you lived up to your childhood potential? Well, you know, it's really funny because <laughs> my entire life, I always wanted to be a teacher. Okay. So in some ways, yes. Like I am a teacher. I am doing what I always wanted to do. But I still feel like I haven't. I still feel like I'm not doing what like, not that I'm not doing what I should be doing, but like I'm not as great as I should be or I'm not as like, I don't know. It's Yeah, it's a really like, it's, it's a funny feeling, even doing the thing, achieving the goal that I always had did, doesn't make me feel like I'm living up to my childhood potential. That's so weird. So, right? yeah. So, yeah. Clearly, it's um, something internal, not external, because if it were external, like, I've made it. I've done it. My, my childhood potential was supposed to be to become an astronaut. Oh, Yeah. Like you're just destined that. for failure. <laughs> like, <laughs> like only 500 people have ever gone to space. And in a way that's chasing Atlantis basically is a whole documentary about coming to terms with feeling like I failed my childhood dream. Wow. That's really what that documentary is all about. Um, and and, and I, I talk about that pretty openly in some of the footage that we've shot. And that's actually what we had our conversation with astronaut Chris Hadfield about. Oh, interesting. And I've got a really good clip of him. It's in the trailer, actually, for the film, when it ever finally comes out. But he says something that's along the same lines of what Troy says about Stubbs. Chris Hadfield was like, you cannot connect your entire sense of self-worth to one goal. Yeah, that makes sense. You'll always be stuck in this place of like that obsessive kind of mindset or the kind of this this failure or FOMO or or unrealistic expectations. So he's like, instead, it's more about just challenging yourself and and being willing to learn and adapt and change. And I think putting that self-worth more in who you believe you are as a person. So not what you do, but like who you are yeah. and, and being able to recognize like a healthy distinction between those things. Sure, sometimes it overlaps, but but not always. Whereas Troy says that his that Stubbs' entire self-worth is on this one mission, this one event in his yeah. Life. That is, I think, a little scary because, first of all, because, like, yeah, you, what if it doesn't work? Like, there, there's just so much that's just, like, just not healthy. But I think that it also does connect to that toxic genius mentality of, like, mm. 
my self-worth is so wrapped up in this one goal that I am willing to trample over anyone. Because if I can't do that, then I am worthless as a as a person. So it doesn't matter if I have to, yeah, like, you know, if other people's mental well-being or, you know, work-life boundaries have to suffer. Because this isn't just about the goal. This is about whether I am worthy of love and care and acceptance and... And life. Yeah. Yeah. Because he says, he's like, I'd rather die than fail. Which is not okay. It's not okay. Now, silently in this, and we could probably get into this more later, but, you know, Wesley carries this burden too. Oh, yeah. He wants to be in Starfleet more than anything. That's his one obsession. He's staying late nights. He's doing all this extra work. He's doing everything he can to get into the academy. But at no point is he ever like, I'm going to risk the whole ship to make my dream work. No. Well, I and I think part of what what happens in this, we can get into it. I think that Crusher is a little worried that he might end up like that. Yeah, he might become that way. Yeah, in a way he has. And I, there's one fault I find in this episode, because I do really like it, is that the resolution doesn't really happen in that sense about him and... and and his com- contrast and comparison with Stubbs, it just sort of ends at that point yeah. partway through the episode. Because yeah. they're trying to, to create a contrast between them, or, or at least like a parallel, but then it kind of just, that thread sort of disappears. Uh, it becomes more about fighting the robots. Well, should we get into it? Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. In this episode, Wesley Crusher's science project escapes from his lab, threatening both the Enterprise itself, as well as the scientific mission that it is hosting. So, okay, I know I said, I said we should get into it, and we should. But let's just talk because the opening, you can tell by the opening that things are different. We are in season three. This is a new show. They had a new cinematographer, I think. That's something that I I read. So that's why the feel is a lot different. The The colors are like a lot warmer and richer and yep. like more saturated. There's new uniforms. There are new uniforms. Now, these are not the final version of the uniform that we get in this show oh is that right it's not i've not right. noticed that i don't know if you know. so these uniforms have these two seams on the front like kind of i don't know what the so like along the chest not quite all the way out I, I can't really describe where it is but there are these two seams along the front and uh that eventually changes i thought they were the same but that the seam is less visible later because they're wearing the same uniform for years and it just looks more worn no, apparently this is this is a different one. So nice. it only lasts a little while. Okay. It's like part with like the them. third season. They they switch to their their regular like the uniforms that they end up for the rest of them. I don't know if you noticed okay. in this episode that like all of the main characters have these new uniforms, but everyone else is still in the old one pieces. Hey, there's only so much budget for yeah. costume for the that's just how it is. Yeah. So but I think I think the cast was very happy to have these new uniforms because like the one pieces were really putting a strain on people's like spines. Oh my god! And like we're just uncomfortable. And and I know you you mentioned I think when we started when we first started recording you mentioned that you liked the the original uniforms because they weren't as like militaristic and they showed that like Starfleet is not a military organization. How do you feel about the new ones? Well, these are I think still the same, right? Because they're they're brightly colored. Okay. Yep. They they don't look militarized kind of. You know, later on you get these sort of our gloomy gray colors and yeah. they look they look more like a military tile the uniform kind of subdued colors. So yeah, I still like these. Okay. Yeah, they're great. I I think the show the show just feels really different. 
Yeah. Now that you're watching it as an adult, like as a kid, you may not notice the transition as much, but the show kind of gets like a, a little bit of a, a bump. Like it's almost like a refresh in a way or a soft reboot in a sense. Yeah. Like the, like you said, the lighting's different. The, the pacing of the episode is so different. We have this exciting opening before the commercial break. We actually know what the episode is about <laughs> before the, the opening credits. The opening credits are new. Uh, there's like cool actiony music at the beginning. You're like, wow, we're in the 90s. We This is a 90s show now. Yeah. And I did make a note. The captain's logs tell us a lot less of things that we've already seen. Right. Yeah. Like there's there's still exposition, but it's not like, well, just to recap the last 15 minutes for you. Yeah. 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 Let's actually have more content instead. Yeah. 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 So it's it's the pacing's different. It, it does feel like a refreshed show and yeah. it's it's cool. We also don't see the those big black tape strips on the back panel of the bridge anymore. <laughs> they figured out how to light the bridge without all that <laughs> glare and reflection off the back. Like it's just, it looks I way more pro. I actually noticed that, but I have heard of them. Yeah, the, the Blu-ray edition in particular, like uh, which I, I think are the ones on Netflix, they, they're pretty obvious in some of the scenes. <laughs> they make fun of that in Lower Decks too. Yeah. It's funny. We have an opening exterior shot of the ship and then we're panning over a desk and there's a bunch of food on it it looks like maybe scrambled eggs or something yeah. and like work kind of strewn about yeah like this is you know a desk and we could hear like kind of like light snoring and we see wesley has fallen asleep at his desk and Riker is calling from the bridge and waking him up and asking if he forgot to set his alarm yeah so wesley like rushes he closes a couple canisters and heads to the bridge and so we get the captain's log which is that they're in a binary star system on an astrophysical research mission. Can you talk about what's going on here? Right. So we have a binary star system where we have a smaller, more compact object, in this case, a neutron star, orbiting a larger, probably red giant that is in the final stages of its life. And what can happen in these circumstances is that the larger companion star, as it's expanding, uh, it enters the the kind of like the gravitational field, just the lobe, basically it's called, around the smaller object where it begins to pull material off the larger star. And depending on the type of object, it can that material can land on the surface of the star and it can trigger an explosion. Now, I'm not 100% sure here, but the other object in this binary system is a neutron star. And it's actually kind of difficult from my understanding is for that accreted material to land on the star's surface and create explosions, what it would actually do instead is create a disk around it that slowly accelerates the star more quickly and generates these like uh, a constant stream of X-ray radiation. So if we wanted to be really specific in astronomy, what they should have done is replace that neutron star with a white dwarf star. White dwarf stars do accumulate material from companions on their surface that do lead to novas. Not supernovas, but sometimes novas, which is the explosion of material on the surface. Or you can sometimes have a supernova where the entire star explodes. But that's not important for the episode. <laughs> so that's fine. What we're seeing is there's one thing drawing material off another. And they say that every 197 years or 96, it creates an explosion. And they want to be able to record that explosion. I do want to just note there's a really cute moment when Wesley enters the bridge. And like Riker points at him in a kind of friendly but but also chiding sort of way of like, you're late, Crusher. Uh, but so so we've got Paul Stubbs on the bridge and what he's he wants to study the decay of neutrinium, sorry, neutronium expelled mm -hmm. at relativistic speeds from this stellar explosion that happens in a few hours. And he compares it to 
uh, Old Faithful, the geyser. This is the only like regular burst of this, I don't know, regular explosion of energy on this scale in the, he says in the universe, I think. That's, yeah, that's not really the big. Yeah, we we observe bursts of energy like this that happened on a regular timing all the time. There's a lot of them that we record oh, in space constantly. We don't know what a lot of them are. And some of them might be phenomena that we're, we don't understand, but we do also see others that regularly burst in, in, in a certain way because they are like very much like our own planet circling the sun. Yeah. Things move in very regular yeah. patterns like clockwork and they create these predictable bursts of energy or events in space. Maybe it's this particular burst of energy that's different because like you said, this doesn't usually happen with a neutron star. So. Yeah, as far as I know. Yeah, there really is no such thing as neutronium really. I mean, I, they, we use that in science fiction to describe yeah. this like super compact, dense material that's in neutron stars, which is about as dense as anything can get. Yeah. But, you know, it's fun. It's a fun science fiction-y thing about neutron stars. Yeah. So Picard enters from the ready room. Do you think he was just recording the log just then as we were watching them on the bridge? I mean, it's probably the most realistic log interpretation yeah. we've seen so far <laughs> that in this case, where it's like, yeah, at least he came from a place where he probably would be recording something. So yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So he asks uh, Stubbs if he wants to inspect the egg one more time. But Stubbs is like, no, no, no. I've been inspecting that thing for the last 20 years. Let's just lay it. And so they, we get this great shot of the shuttle bay and it has that like shuttle bay launching alarm, which I really love that. So it's starting to take off and it's going to go through the hatch or like through the force field that's containing the air. It just is about to do that. Like an alarm goes off and everything starts to shake. Stubbs rolls across the bridge. It looks like he's injured himself. He like it's it's not a small roll. He like no. falls over and he's like tumbling all over the bridge. I mean, he's not used to the starship shit. Everyone else is like, oh yeah, the ship's shaking. Yeah. We know how to stay steady. Uh, he's just a scientist. He doesn't know he rolls across the floor. <laughs> but the danger is that they the ship has lost stability and it's now falling into this, it basically almost looks like a river, but it's a stream of, of material that's being drawn off the larger star yeah. onto this neutron star. And of course, that material is like high energy plasma, I'm assuming it's probably thousands of degrees. And so they don't want to fall into it. Yeah, and nothing on the ship is responding, like including the shields. They can't even put their shields up to protect them from this, yeah, this stream of stellar matter. That's right. Yeah. And we go into the credits and the credits are different. We have new opening. The opening, the other opening was like still in the solar system. But now, you know, this is year two. We're out in space. So we have like cool spacey things now. Yeah. One of my favorite parts is there's a, this is going to be terrible. Isn't it? Audio, an audio medium is terrible for like describing how things look. But there's like a, a part where there's like a, a blue light with a red light inside of it, which then switches to like two like a blue and a red, I don't know, these two celestial bodies like passing each other. Yeah. I really like that. Anyway, it's I love I love these credits. Yeah, there's like um there's an opening, like right in the very opening as one is coming right toward the camera that it cuts away. Um, and you're like there's kind of a blue hazy mist yeah. with a bunch of stars inside of it. I think that's based off a real uh, cluster of stars known as the uh, Pleiades star cluster. Okay. So it Star Trek fans out there, if you look at the Pleiades and then look at the opening of the TNG credits as of season three, you'll let me know. I think that's what that's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the Pleiades star cluster, which is, uh, uh, you can actually see it with the naked eye. It's supposed to be the seven sisters, quote unquote, that Orion's chasing across the sky that are that Taurus is is uh, protecting. 
And so it looks like a little group of stars and it's a, it's an open cluster of new, newly born stars and you can make it out with the naked eye. It looks like a mini big dipper basically in the sky. There's, there's also like when that is on the screen, there's this like purpley maroon thing. It's like a line. It's almost like a vein going across the screen. Yeah. It's, it's cool. I don't know what that is, but. The spacey, spacey stuff. Yeah. So after the intro, the ship is still falling into this stellar matter. But they managed to get the shields back online and, and turn the ship around so they can kind of dampen their their impact. They still fall into mm-hmm. it, but they've got shields and they've they're not going at full speed. And we see this cool like splash of the material as they hit the stream on the view screen. It, something else I noted too is the beginning of season three. I know that these effects have been touched up for the Blu-ray release and then of course what's on Netflix, but it does really seem like the special effects have also taken a step up by season three. And even we just see that in this opening uh, episode of the season. Now, unfortunately, the computer has no knowledge of this control malfunction. It like it has no recollection of this happening. And yeah, there's like no log entry. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So we go to sick bay, and lots of people are being treated, and and Wesley enters to talk to Stubbs, who's being treated by Doctor Crusher. Doctor Crusher is back. She's back. We don't really make a big deal out of it. We're all like, hey, it's Dr. Crusher. They like zoom in on her face or whatever. Yeah. Like there. <laughs> That's what we would have done last season, though. That's what we did last season, a dramatic zoom. Yeah. So Wesley says that everything is back to normal and they can continue with the launch again. And Crusher's kind of working on Stubbs' back because on the bridge, Riker is like holding him while he's on the bridge after he's fallen over. It looks like he's really hurt his back. So yeah. he's helping his back and wants to make sure that he can stand up and but Crusher explains to Stubbs and, of course, then to the audience that she was away at Starfleet Medical last year. And so she missed about two inches of Wesley. Do you think do you think Will Wheaton actually grew two inches that year and they put that in or? that's I mean, that's possible. I had a big growth spurt around that age or a little yeah. bit younger. And so I got pretty big. I never had a growth spurt. I was just always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Ruthie. I'm sorry. So Stubbs says this thing where and this becomes part of the theme of this episode that he wouldn't want his mother flying through space with him and that his woman or that his mother was a woman of letters and a great critic. <laughs> and Wesley, it turns out, has read this book that yeah. his mother had written about his life. Oh, is it was it that his mom wrote it or it was OK? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The unauthorized biography is his life written by his mom, I who I guess was she was the one who wrote it. That's funny. yeah. Which explains a lot more about Stubbs. But <laughs> I guess Wesley had read this book and he's like. He looks at at, at uh, Dr. Crusher and is like, good God, does this boy not have any fun? All he does is fly the ship and read. <laughs> yeah, and it, it sort of becomes clear that Crusher, like, Dr. Crusher doesn't doesn't really know a whole lot about what's going on with Wesley. Because she's like, yeah, of course he has fun. And he's like, well, no, I, I usually spend my time studying or working on school stuff. I wouldn't, And then he talks, like we said, he wants to get into the academy and, and all that stuff. So, so we kind of, there's a little moment on Crusher's face where she's like what does my kid do yeah I've, I've like, missed out yeah 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 Stubbs and Wesley go off to check the egg this is what they call Stubbs device that they've built so it's it's this device that he's been working on it's basically a lifetime of work it looks like kind of a giant hexagon we've seen it before it was in thing. Oh, have we? it was in the uh season two premiere actually the the child it was the like the thing where they were keeping all of these um highly infectious samples of things right 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 so it's a repurposed set piece yeah cool it is a cool prop yeah so they've they've kind of turned it into this probe so essentially it's going to go out into space and observe 
this explosion so he can record the data that he needs. So they go check this thing. They call it the egg. And uh, Stubbs also refers to it as Humpty Dumpty. So when they go off to go find it, he's like, let's make sure that Humpty Dumpty yeah. is in one piece. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you this. Yeah. At what point in history, this is a total tangent, did Humpty Dumpty become to be known as an egg? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. It's not in yeah. it, but but he he does fall apart. Um, I guess. Well, the idea is that he had to be put back together. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it doesn't say that in the poem. I don't know. I wonder if that came from Sesame Street. Well, I remember, and per- Canadian listeners will perhaps also remember, uh, the TV show Polka Dot Door. Yes. Yeah. They had like stuffed animals. There was bear and marigold. Mm-hmm. Marigold. And yeah. Humpty and Dumpty. <laughs> and Humpty and Dumpty Humpty were and these two like sort of egg shaped creatures with arms and legs. But they were like, yeah. yeah. So that's where I think of. That could have been that. There's an episode of Sesame Street where Kermit the Frog is reporting on Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is it Kermit the Frog here? All the king's horses and all the king's men are trying to put Humpty Uh-oh. together. Tangent. So <laughs> so they go to check the egg. Yeah. So then, but then in Sick Bay, Crusher notices that the replicator is just like spilling a drink into an overflowing glass. And she yeah. tells the computer to fix the food slot. And the computer's like, ah, oh, food slot's working perfectly. And she's like, check again. And it, the computer's still like, no, it's, it's fine. Food slot's nothing wrong happening here. And it doesn't stop until she deactivates the food slot. I love how in Star Trek, when you want to know something's wrong with the Enterprise, the first thing that starts happening is like doors malfunction. Yeah. And the replicators stop working properly. The same thing <laughs> happened in Contagion. It's like... You know when something's about to go down if the doors stop working properly in the Enterprise. It's just like the, the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. About to get doors, worse. The doors which don't have handles in case they stop working. There's in no case they stop working. Safety mechanism. You're stuck. And because the replicators stop working, everyone's going to die of starvation. <laughs> like, oh, shoot, we should have packed some real food. Also, is there any other time that the replicators are referred to as food slots? Not to my knowledge, but I'm going to be yeah. in an ear open for that. Yeah, I don't remember anyone ever saying that. But stuff is happening all over the ship. The Forge tells Picard that he's working on it as Crusher enters the ready room. And Crusher is come to talk to Picard and sees how how he feels if he was in Wesley's position. And he says, inhibited, maybe. Yeah, inhibited. <laughs> Having his mom on the ship, yeah. So it's, it's an interesting position that Wesley's in because I think probably, like, the impression I get is he is on the young end for starting at the academy. Like, it's not like he's like he's 17. And some people start, you know, post-secondary education at 17. But a lot of people are like 18 or even 19 when they start. So it's not sure. like he is an adult. And I feel like there are probably other 17-year-olds on the ship who have their parents also on the ship. But the difference is that Wesley is also an officer or an, an acting officer. You know, he's got this field commission. The issue is not that you're 17 and your parents are around. The issue is that, like, he's in this weird in-between space. He for, he had a year without his mother where he was kind of, you know, he was still being looked after by the by the rest of the crew. But in a lot of ways, he was very independent. So now his mom is back. And so... They have to navigate that. And also he is doing work that is, I think, usually expected of older people. So he's quite young for his for the the job that he has. Right. Yeah. 
Picard tries to assure that Wesley's doing fine, um, but she's worried that they are like connecting. And then and Picard realizes that what she's talking about is that she no longer feels his dependence. Yeah. And that makes sense. She's been gone for a while. He's gotten older. He's taken on these big responsibilities. And so he's maybe they need to readjust their dynamic. So she asks what he's like. And at first he starts talking about him. He starts talking about Wesley as an officer. But she's like, no, no, no. Like, what is he like? And this is it's a nice moment uh, and a reminder that uh, Picard had a pre-existing relationship with Wesley's father, with Jack Crusher. Right, yeah. And so he says he's his father's son, honest, trusting, strong. Crusher wants to know, like, but like, how is he doing socially? Does he have friends? Has he ever been in love? And Picard is like, okay, uh, this is not, this is beyond my knowledge here. He doesn't know. Yeah, he also doesn't know. He has no idea. And then she asks him, well, what were you doing at 17? And he's like, probably getting into a lot more trouble than Wesley. And yeah. she's like, well, isn't that what 17-year-olds are supposed to be? Isn't yeah. that what they're supposed to be doing? So she's worried that he's kind of maybe skipping his childhood. Did you get into trouble when you were 17, Matt? I've, I followed all the rules, Ruthie, yeah. all the time because I was always very scared of getting yeah. into trouble. I hated <laughs> getting into trouble. I hated getting yelled at. I followed all the rules. I'm making up for it now. <laughs> I, one time, not very long ago, like, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, I was walking somewhere with a friend and we ended up like accidentally walking through this area that was under construction or something and I was like kind of worried about like oh what's oh we, maybe we shouldn't be here and she was like oh Ruthie it's fine like and I was like oh but like what if we get caught and she was like well nothing's gonna happen to us and I was like no I know and it would just be really embarrassing yeah there's that too right you're, you feel like I'm I'm embarrassed because you're the good kid who follows yeah. all the rules it's, it's also one of the reasons why I'm thinking back on childhood and the way the childhood was defined, maybe for at least for me or both of us, but like that smart kids or kids that were seen or told that they were going to be high achieving were really just obedient. I was rewarded for being obedient. Yeah, I, I'm trying to make up for that now, being a little bit more disobedient, although it has gotten me fired for at least one job. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it was for good cause. I still stand by my beliefs and standing up for myself in that situation. More on that another time. Anyway, so we're in the shuttle bay and Wesley and Stubbs check out the egg and Stubbs says that he sees a lot of himself in Wesley. This may be a little uncomfortable, actually. Yeah, I... Stubbs has a weird... A weird fixation almost on Wesley. Yeah, it's more than like... He doesn't really know Wesley very well yet. Yeah. So to, to kind of be like, oh, you're like me because you're the smart kid on the ship. We're the same. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's presumptuous. It feels claimy on someone else's personhood. I mean, like you said, he doesn't know Wesley. So I think he's really projecting a lot. He's also complimenting Wesley, but then but but complimenting him on something that he acknowledges is not necessarily a good thing, like having all this potential as a kid. And the feeling like you can never live up to it. And then at the same time, like he's telling him what a bad thing it is. So it's not really a compliment. Like he's 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 telling Wesley that his life is going to suck. Yeah, because he 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 talks about his own potential as being I think this is such a a great line of writing. Um, And I'm 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 paraphrasing a bit. It's like. But you'll never come up against a greater adversary than your own potential. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, 
to position your potential as an adversarial relationship is so interesting as a character trait. But it's one that, again, kind of like what I was saying earlier, I relate to it. But that's not, I don't want to have that kind of relationship with my own potential. You know, this kind of like you're always thinking of your life in this FOMO kind of situation all the time. There's a piece of it that like, that means your potential is something outside of you. Yeah, interesting. And that's so weird. I, I believe that is true for many people in the sense that if you're looking at like discrimination, for example, or or when we where people's potential is is dependent on the society around them, which I guess it for all of us it always is. But where why don't we create societies there and where people are not at in an adversarial relationship with their potential, where we help people meet their potential and give them the means to do so and and the safety of the society around them to make that happen. That's interesting. I almost have a different way of thinking of it. Okay, yeah. Because I would say that, like, your potential is internal. Mm-hmm. You're, you, you, you are, I mean, I think, I also think the idea of potential is very strange because you're capable of doing what you're capable of doing. And, and then there are, there can be barriers to that, which can be internal or external. But, so potential is is sometimes a, a weird thing because sometimes I'm like, oh, I could I could achieve so much more if I didn't struggle with ADHD and executive sure. functioning or whatever. But like yeah. okay, but I I can't because I do struggle with those things. So that's not going to happen. So what is that potential? But but it's like when we talk about that kind of discrimination, like that's a case of that that to me is a true case of potential being like like that's a true tragedy because that's like someone yes. who really could do it and then because of external factors they were stopped or or wasted. prevented yeah wasted potential. but with stubs it's like he can't live up to his potential not necessarily because of external factors but because he's built this idea up in his mind that's so big that it's not necessarily true to him and for the first time in this episode, he is now about to face, though, an external limitation on his potential. Yeah, and he doesn't know how to handle it. Yeah, yeah that that's yeah. a very good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. But yeah, I, I just I find this character so fascinating because I I relate to the struggle that he has. I don't want to deal with it in at all the way that he does. Yeah. But I do have that kind of like these sort of mental gymnastics that happen in my own head around things like potential and and being like a wonderkind because I was always told that I was like smart kid and was going to achieve lots of stuff. And then you're like, like what? I guess going to space like that that was the biggest thing I could think of at the time. And then driving yourself nuts with that idea for like your life. Yeah, I actually had. It's interesting. I, I. Like I said, I always really wanted to be a teacher and it was always such a strong drive. But I had people in my life who were like, oh, you could do so much more than that, which is like a a rude thing to say. Teachers do a lot. But also, Uh, what what are these other I feel like if I didn't have that drive to be a teacher, I would have like I I might have had a really hard time figuring out what to do, because what could be so good that it, it lives up to your potential? You know, I don't know. I don't know what my potential is. Like, I know it's I does anyone know what that is? Like, I, I feel like sometimes I could be doing more in a certain area and I have, I've got very specifics I can point to. I have ideas and, and things that I think I could accomplish if I tried them. And so those seem like potential and I want to try those things. 
But I don't know, like maybe determining what our potential actually is, is a lifelong journey. And maybe it's a journey that we should enjoy because like yeah. you said earlier, we should just try stuff, you know, and yeah. figure out what we can or can't do and what we like doing and not doing, you know, and, and yeah. focus on that. And well, maybe that's why it's such a difficult thing to live up to, because who can really quantify their potential? I don't know. Right. So maybe so no one no one is ever able to say I am fully living up to my potential because we could all always be improving. But that doesn't mean we're not do, we're not good enough. Yeah. And, and can anyone else make that determination for you? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe maybe trusted people in your life who know you, they can <laughs> weigh in on that. But that would be, you know. Yeah. Otherwise, it might be trying to determine someone else's potential as a could be used as a form of oppression. Yep. Yeah. Or if not that, just this weird stuff that Stubbs is doing to Wesley. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> you're example. a wonderkind just like me. Like, ugh. You're a wonderkind. You don't yeah. know him. Back off. Yeah, you don't know him. Back of the bridge, all of a sudden, red alert has happened because Worf is picking up a Borg vessel. We haven't heard about the Borg for a while. Borg vessel. They're mentioning the Borg. Yeah. They're mentioning the Borg. And so he's picking up a Borg vessel all on sensors. The shields are not responding. And now they're firing energy weapons with the shields down. This is very bad. But then also the ship just disappeared. Something something fishy going on. The ship shakes again. The doors, as always, the doors start opening and closing. Picard asks the computer what's going on. And the computer just starts like saying chess moves. Like, yeah, it's messed up. Blah, blah, blah. Do you play chess? Um, I, I used to play chess. I actually won a chess tournament in elementary school. Oh. I, I could never be interested in the rules of chess long enough to ever really play a game. I would just get... See, I didn't like it either. This is another <laughs> example of one of those things where, like, because you're a smart kid, you're supposed to be good at chess. I've had people say to me, oh, I bet you're good at chess. And I'm like, I don't understand the no, rules. No, yeah, I, I can't I can't focus on it well enough to think that many yeah. years ahead. So what we what we learned now is that this is basically the Enterprise going through, like, a blue screen of death. This is, like, yes. the, the, Federate, the Starfleet example of this. We know that, like... That there was no Borg vessel. It was just like uh, the sensors malfunctioning and we got all these other issues. And so Picard calls a conference because he's like, we need to figure out what's going on. And so they discuss whether or not the mission is even still feasible. Picard's like, we need to discuss the future of this mission if there is still even is one. Yeah. And Data says that there has not been a systems-wide technological failure on a starship for 79 years. Apparently, this is a Star Trek V reference. Over the Enterprise A? I guess. Honestly, I only watched that movie once and I forced you to watch me with it and I don't really remember what happens. In it, so. Did I? I watched that with you? You didn't want to. Okay. <laughs> but I was like, no, we're watching all of the movies together. And That's great. That I'm glad we did. Over. It was a long time ago, but I don't That's fair enough, it. yeah. You know what? I have a better appreciation for Star Trek V now. I still think it's the worst of all the films, but it has some really neat ideas. I just and It has a great soundtrack. I just wish that... It did come together a little bit better. But yeah, that, that episode or that movie starts off with the Enterprise A because it's brand new. And I think they left Space Dock earlier or something. It's it's a big mess. No, that's the Enterprise B that left early or something, right? And everything's happening on Tuesday. That's in Star Trek That seven. is. That's, that's in Star Trek 7. Yeah. But yeah, in gen uh, there's, that's an Enterprise B. Anyways, cool. I didn't know that was a reference to a movie. That's neat. <laughs> yeah. uh, according to IMDb, at least. Thank so you, Troy IMDb. Troy enters the conference room. I think this is the first time we see her in the episode. And Stubbs, she's like 
She's like, Dr. Stubbs is waiting outside, but he is like walking in right behind her. He was clearly yeah, he... supposed to wait outside. He was not. Oh, hand. yeah. But he's super upset. And he he tells Picard, like, if we miss our chance now, we're not we are not going to have another chance to do this. This is next going to happen in like two centuries. Yeah. And he has this thing where he walks around with his hands in his pockets all the time. <laughs> like he's this kind of nonchalance and and smugness. Yeah. But you can tell he's obviously like he's he's really upset. And so he's like, if we miss our opportunity, we're not going to get a chance to study this again for another two centuries. And then you're going to get in trouble for it. He's yeah. Like, the Federation is going to have a lot of questions for you. Picard is like, I first of all, no, they won't. Second of all, I don't care. What's important to me is the safety of this crew. Mm-hmm. And Stubbs like accuses him of not worrying about safety, but just playing it safe and Picard this is a good Picard line and Patrick Stewart just has great delivery of this these lines when he is not fighting with someone but when he is not giving someone what they want and he always does it with a smile like he does here and he says my dear doctor in our current position when that star explodes you will get to watch your experiment from the inside out yeah, because they can't move. So when that explosion happens, it's going to be bad, especially if we can't get their the shields up or operating. Like, they're in a bad state to protect themselves or defend yeah. the ship right now. Troy tries to empathize with Stubbs, and he tells her to turn her beam off into his soul. He says, I'll, I'll share the feelings that I wish to share. They're like, well, we need to, you know, if we don't leave on time, that at least it'll be one way into the record books. Yeah, I didn't fully understand what he was saying there. Was he saying, like, if we don't leave in time, we'll die, and that'll put us into the record books. Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. And in a way, it shows his obsession because yeah. it's not always with science, but to be, like, recognized. Yeah. You know, the, the, the recognition of it. And that he has, he wants to have his place in history. Like, that's really important. Yeah, but that, e- even if he gets it through dying. Even if he gets it through dying. And I think he does say here at one point that if they, they need to leave, and he says, well, I would rather die. Like, yeah. he says that outward, like, I yeah. would rather die. And that's what Picard says. I don't think you speak for the majority of the crew. Yeah, he doesn't. No. They're not all here. Like, you know, they've, they've got other stuff than his project. Yeah. And and Troy calls him on it. She says that he isn't kidding when he says that he would rather die than leave. Yeah. He meant that. Yeah. She says, this is what we talked about at the beginning, his entire self-worth is on the line with this experiment. So we go to engineering and LaForge has found like a lesion and there's some kind of disintegration in the computer core. And he tells Wesley that it looks like someone climbed in there and started taking it apart. And Wesley gets this look of like, uh oh, on his face. Yeah. So he goes back to his lab and he starts opening up all those canisters that we saw earlier that he was closing up when he was woken up for his shift. Yeah. He starts examining them with an instrument that he looks up and he looks very worried. Yeah. So... And when you're in a moral conundrum, who do you go see, Ruthie? <laughs> well, I would say you go see Guided, but he doesn't know she's going to be there. He's just like crawling around on the floor setting traps. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. And I like how Guided's like, um, I run a clean place. If you don't have to set <laughs> traps in my restaurant. Yeah. It's like trying to catch like roaches or whatever. Yeah. Well, space roaches. So Wesley thinks that everything is going on might be his fault. And he says that he was studying nanites, these tiny little microscopic computers in sickbay for his final genetics project. And they're designed to enter cells and make repairs. And they're supposed to remain confined to the lab, but two of them are loose. And it made me think, 
that maybe he should have been working on some kind of safer lab conditions. Like if these things could get out and be eating the ship, I guess this is kind of unusual for what we know that they could do, but uh, maybe he should have used some more precautions. Well wondering like who is supervising this experiment because usually when you're in school you don't just get to run experiments by yourself i know Riker is the one who was supposed to be like in charge of overseeing his education totally it's Riker's fault so, so did Riker <laughs> just say like yeah go ahead get whatever you need from the sick bay genetics closet and i'll i'll open it for you take what you need i'm not gonna look at what it is <laughs> hey the last time wesley was working on an experiment the experiment led to him winning a battle between the halfway of the enterprise so i guess he's like you know what it's fly do whatever you want i trust you i owe you one wesley just take whatever you need yeah so his experiment was to see if i guess nanites usually work on their own but he was like well if we put two of them together will they combine their skills and increase their their usefulness and he says it was just a science project and kaiden says that an old doctor friend of hers said the same thing to her and his name was Frankenstein. Frankenstein. What I take from this is that Guinan hung out with Mary Shelley while she was writing Frankenstein. Like Guinan and Mary Shelley oh, were friends. Right? I like that headcanon interpretation. This that is, is cool. Yeah, this is what I take from this. I like that. I've accepted that now into my brain okay. that Mary Shelley and Guinan were friends. I'm, I believe this. Cool. Cool. So Crusher calls Wesley and wonders why he isn't in his quarters. Because they're all they're all supposed to be like confined to quarters now, right? Because confined like, to quarters and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so before leaving, Wesley asks Guinan not to tell anyone, and she looks at him with this, like a knowing look, and he's like, "Yes, I know. I'll tell them if that's what's actually happening." Because he's still yeah. not totally convinced that that's what's going on. Guinan asks him a question here. He's like, "Do you think you're going to get a good grade?" And he's like, "I always get an A." Yeah, he doesn't say it happily. No, he's he does like I always get an A. And then after he leaves, Guinan's like. Well, so did Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will they get an A on this, though? Like, I feel like there might be, you know, you fail because you almost destroyed the crew. Well, I feel like there is an issue with lab safety. Like, yeah, that, that should factor into your grade. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Captain's log. So we get a captain's log. So the captain doesn't. So here's, here's an interesting. We actually know more information than is being put into the captain's log because the captain says, that the computer core has clearly been tampered with, but there's no sign of a security breach. We're getting like some information, but not, you know, like it's not like he's recapped the episodes for us so far. So it's it's different. Yeah, it's, instead it's showing their knowledge versus what we know as an audience. Yeah. So we're actually, yeah. now we know more than they do. Yeah, you're right. That's, uh, that's probably odd for a log. So we go to the bridge and we decide to launch the egg again. So we're trying one more time. The shuttle bay doors do not respond. And then all of a sudden, the song, the computer starts blaring stars and stripes forever. They can't turn it off. It's such an annoying song. Oh, my God. It's so Data starts, like, talking about what what it is, like, when it was written and who it was written. They're like, yes, we know. Turn it off. That's not the issue right now, Data. No. Shut it down. So they cut power to the bridge. Yeah. That turns the music off. And now the bridge is, like, dark. The ship's basically crippled at this point. So... Picard asks LaForge to, he's like, can we just get out of the solar system? Because at this point now, he's pulling the plug on this mission. Yeah. So in the shuttle bay, Stubbs is like looking over his project with Wesley. And he says it's the egg that Stubbs laid. I guess laid an egg is like meant to be an embarrassing thing. I don't know. I I think so. Yeah. He says that he could maybe live with the failure, but the fact that they won't even get to try uh, and won't even be mentioned. He's like, no one. And. 
He's wearing, yeah, the egg that Stubbs, Stubbs laid. And Wesley says, well, no one will say that. But his reply is, well, no one will say anything at all. Yeah, that's that's the real worry that he won't get any. He won't be remembered. He doesn't have a legacy. He should have talked mm. to Chris Hadfield. So he starts talking about baseball because he talks about how this is his one chance at bat. And now he's not going to even get his opportunity to take a swing at the ball. So he loves baseball. I, I like this part of Star Trek that like, Nobody cares about baseball anymore in Star Trek. Like the world has moved on from baseball, but then you always meet these characters who do care about baseball. They care about baseball. Yeah, there's some of the. I guess a lot of the, a lot of the writers are really into baseball and Shakespeare. That's like yeah. a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so they start talking about baseball, and he says that it was abandoned by a society that valued fast food and faster games, but that he watches baseball games. And Wesley asks him if he recreates them on the holodeck. And he's like, no, like he's surprised that Wesley will even ask. He's like, no, I, I watch them in my head like that. He, he knows and has memorized the statistics of the players and he recreates the games from the statistics in his brain, which is kind of cool, actually. It is cool. It is weird that he says to Wesley, men like us don't need holodecks. Don't need holodecks. It's a yeah. weird thing. But he is very upset that this brand new era of astrophysics that he was supposed to usher in uh, is now being postponed 196 years on account of rain. On account of rain. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So he doesn't even get his chance at bat. He doesn't even get to swing. He might strike out, but now he doesn't even get to take his chance at bat at all. And he has this monologue that he goes on about like getting on the plate and pointing out to a star then taking a big blast for the bat and the crowd you know he's got this kind of grandiose notion of his work yes he really does i don't know if anyone's that excited about astrophysics i mean i am i get it sure but <laughs> yeah, i don't think there's any crowds going to be cheering over your astrophysical uh maybe in the future i mean if that i would be happy if that's what the future's <laughs> like ruthie that people post astrophysical reports and everyone's like cheering in stadiums over them that would be great don't get me wrong. Got so much more excited as you were telling me that than I expected. Like people go up, you have a stadium, and you're like, "Here's my published paper on neutronium <laughs> decay." And everyone's like, "Yeah, <laughs> it's a grand slam for astrophysics." <laughs> sure, I mean, why not? <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is what well, we're future working we want. This, this is what we're working toward. This is our future <laughs> that is as bright and as just as we see yeah, it in TNG. Is. Yeah. And maybe, hey, maybe the astrophysicists are also playing baseball at the same time. Who knows? They could. Put it all together. They could, they could put it all together. Or not. So we go to the lab. I'm not sure if it's Wesley's lab or if it's like a classroom or if it's in his quarters, but he's checking his traps. And Crusher comes in to talk to him. She says, you need to rest. And this is a classic, like, Mom, you just don't understand. I feel like this happens in a lot of shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer comes to mind where yeah. it's like the kids, the stakes that the kid is dealing with are way higher than the parent thinks because the parent just thinks like Crusher here thinks, oh, Wesley, you're taking on too much responsibility. You're taking like this. This mission is not yours to worry about. You need to rest. She doesn't realize that actually it is his to worry about he actually can fix it it's such a yeah. classic tv like thing of like oh moms you just don't understand except what i like about this is they actually communicate so yeah yeah he says he's like well, why <laughs> you do don't you know me yeah he's like you don't even know me Lee. you haven't <laughs> been here and she's like 
you're right, but I'm here now. And there is like a, like the camera kind of rests on her face for a bit. And she's visibly upset when he says you haven't even been here. But like she can't say anything to that. It's true. She hasn't been there. We can blame the whoever it was who kicked her off the show for season two. I'm not going to blame Crusher herself, but it's true. She can't she can't like, you know, get upset with him for pointing that out. So what she says is, well, I'm here now. So and and he talks to her. He decides to talk to her. Yeah, it's 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 a really cool it's a cool conflict resolution conversation. And so and I love the look on his face where finally he he feels like he can trust her to say he's like I made a terrible mistake. And you feel so much for Wesley yeah, in that situation he's because he's not just dealing with like oh it's my teenage crush broke up with me or whatever. He's like I might have destroyed us all. <laughs> he's just like oh okay that's actually a serious issue that you're dealing with. Yeah, but you can also see like this is. Like, he really is a kid in this moment. Yep. He's not, yes. you know, Ensign Crusher. He's Wesley. And he yeah. he is worried that he... And he's also probably really worried that he let down, like, you know, Riker and LaForge and, and you know, these people who he really looks up to. Yeah, it's such a believable moment between them. And I, I feel like the conversation that, that Crusher has with Picard earlier in the ready room and then this conversation between both of them show like a different level of writing for this new season of Star Trek. Yeah. Like before it, like I, the show just felt so like, I mean, the show was good. Don't get me wrong, but it always felt like it was under that layer of like 80s sci-fi. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. whereas like now it actually feels like two real people. It feels like real people that yes, they are living on a ship in the future, but they're having like a believable conversation between two humans about like a real thing. And I appreciate that about the show. It just feels like it's like leveled out more, you know, like, yeah. To like human yeah. real life conversation. I, I like that. I appreciate about, about the season of Star Trek. And I think the rest of TNG is. For well. sure. So can we just yeah. then take a moment uh, because we haven't mentioned it yet that this. So this is the first episode that we are uh, recording since the SAG after union has gone on. Strike. Yes. Yes. Writers Guild of America has been on strike for quite a while. You know, writers do really important work. And this they do such know, important work. We're we're talking so much about how I mean the writers and also the actors are showing us, you know, they they showed us this model of conflict resolution between a mom and, and kid. And like like you said, like Stubbs is such a cautionary tale. Yeah, it's important work. And they deserve to be paid for it, even if it's even if it's streaming and not on television for crying out loud. Absolutely. I am I am really encouraged that the strike is happening. Yeah. Because there are so many important things that are orbiting it that are being talked about as a result. The fact that like people are not being paid fairly, not just in this industry, but in many others. Also like the threats and dangers around things like AI and AI content creation, the rights of artists to not have their stuff stolen by AI. There there are so many important conversations that are being had by this strike. Okay. Back to the conference room. <laughs> Back to the conference room. Crusher is explaining what nanites are, and they are usually designed to just be uh, exposed to the inside of nuclei during cellular surgeries, and until then, they're kept tightly contained. But these nanites have evolved, and Stubbs... Stubbs is very doubtful. Yeah, he's, he's all like, he scoffs. Robots can't evolve. But <laughs> Wesley explains this his project, and he says that these two nanites have escaped and because he doesn't have a teacher nobody knew that (laughs) nobody knew he was working with 
Yeah, I don't yeah. research supervisor or anything. Yeah. So uh, Wesley shows a piece of linear memory crystal from the computer core that the core is made of. He drops a sample of it in there and they zoom in. So he's got like a, a microscope on this container. And I guess that microscope is like streaming to their screen that they're looking at. Yeah. And they can see the nanites just like eating the crystal. Yeah. And Riker says, Riker says like it looks like candy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, num, num. And then these nanites also, like they, they are actually able to evolve because they are able to replicate themselves. I guess when it's just one on its own, it can't do that. But then when you've got two, they can replicate themselves. They can reproduce basically. And with each new generation, I think data suggests that maybe they are enhancing their own design. So they're, they re- they actually are. That, that is what evolution is. They are evolving. They're, they're adapting and, and changing. And each new generation has different skills. Picard kind of wonders, like, do you think they know what they're doing? Which is so cool. I, I'm glad that they jumped to that right away. It's like, hey, we got to be careful here. Yeah. And we might have inadvertently helped to create a new life form. And we are now responsible for them in a way. And we can't just go and exterminate them. But Stubbs wants to. He's like, you can't have a civilization of computer chips. And he says, they're made in a plant in Dakar, Senegal. So I have been there myself. It's so specific. I didn't yeah. know that uh, computer chips for the Enterprise were made in Dakar, Senegal. But, yeah. uh, you know. So, and I think as a way to try to appeal to the doctor's sentimentalities, he says that it's more like a strain of virus reproducing, and at least that's a bona fide life form, and then challenges her by saying, well, how many viruses have you killed in your lifetime? Like, just kill them. Yeah. The card's like, no, I'm not going to exterminate something if I don't know whether it's intelligent. So he says, we're going to try to remove them safely. There's still time. They still have a few hours before the explosion actually happens, but- he says, we're going to try to do it safely. And then if we can't, we'll use stronger methods or stronger measures. Yeah, things get worse. Yeah. So we cut to this other room, which I think is the computer core. And so is. they're, yeah. yeah, they're sitting in this room and it's it's cool. It's like this, they have a, there's like an interface terminal and there's kind of a glowy sort of hemispherical half cylinder type room with glowy bits in it. And Stubbs walks in. I guess there's no security. So you just able to go into the computer <laughs> core. LaForge and Data or Wesley are there who are trying low levels of gamma bursts, low level gamma bursts to try to slow down their productivity. I guess to try to like sour the parts of the computer they're eating. They'll go here. There's a little bit of a shock for you. Yeah, they're trying to just slow them down, I think. Slow them down. So Stubbs suggests a higher level charge and they're like, well, that that will kill them. And he's like, yeah, I know. And then he just pulls out a gun and shoots the core. So in the ready room, Picard, this is... Picard is talking about Gulliver's Travels to Riker. Did you ever read Gulliver's mm-hmm. Travels? I didn't read that. I did not, but I, I knew the reference. Yeah, yeah. The, the, little, the little people yeah. taking down Gulliver there. Yeah. yeah. But then as they're talking, the you can hear this like gas starts hissing and Picard's like, do you smell that? And they start like coughing. And they go onto the bridge where there are toxic levels of nitrogen oxide and nobody thinks to leave the bridge. They all just kind of stay there and cough until... Riker manages to like turn the air handling system onto manual and and fix the air. But they're all just at their stations. Nobody leaves. <laughs> Coughing. <laughs> well, guess I'm gonna die right now. Guess I'm gonna die. No one's telling me I can leave. I would imagine that if they tried to, the doors are sealed or something because <laughs> the, the nanites, because the nanites are basically retaliating now. They're like, yes. okay, well, you sterilized us with gamma rays. We're gonna sterilize you with the nitrogen. Yeah. Nitrogen. So Worf and Data bring Stubbs to the bridge, and Stubbs is pretty pleased with himself. They explain what Stubbs has done. And Stubbs is like, well, yeah, now you have no choice. 
you've got to kill them all now because they're trying to kill you. And Tita's like, well, yeah, but the fact that they are trying to kill us after you killed a bunch of them actually suggests that they probably are intelligent. Yeah, so he's proved the point now against himself. Yeah. Because he was saying that they may have not been intelligent and, and Data's saying, yeah, well, now that they're responding in this way, it does suggest that they are. Yeah. So Worf points out that the ship is now at risk, that they might have to exterminate them. And Stubbs is like, yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> so Picard's like, you know what? Go to your quarters. Yeah, Go to your room, Stubbs. He can find some to quarters and puts like a security detail out there. So yeah, yeah. no, Stubbs is not allowed to wander the ship freely anymore. Anywhere anymore. So Picard asks Data to find a way to communicate with the nanites. They're assuming that if they are intelligent, they should be able to understand language and stuff. Yeah. So we go to Stubbs' quarters and Troy... I think it's giving one last go at trying to get through to Stubbs. So she says that she wants to help and Stubbs dismisses her interest in his feelings. But she says that she is worried about his state of mind and his need to have this experiment work. And that she's really worried that if he fails, like um, that this portrait of him himself that he is has created, his self-portrait is going to be stretched so tightly that it will finally snap. Stubbs is so weird here. And it's true. Like he is, his portrait is incredibly studied and put on because he gets really serious but then he's like oh when this is over i'm gonna show you new manhattan on beth delta one as you've never seen it and will laugh over glasses of champagne and she could not be less interested in having glasses of champagne with him yeah like what is he thinking yeah i mean wow yeah so kind of gross it and is. weird yeah and yeah. she's just like no. And, and and I like she, I think, is trying to make the point that like she's not interested in his feelings necessarily like for his sake. She is interested in how he's feeling because she's worried that he's going to do something dangerous. Yeah. And Troy leaves. And as she's leaving, Stubbs tells her that sometimes when you reach beneath someone's self-portrait, deep down, you don't find anything at all. Yeah. And that is like sad. Yes. That's. That's so sad that like he is sacrificed almost like his his whole sense of identity is nothing more than just this one thing and this obsession over this one thing. Yeah. And when you take it away that there isn't there's nothing there anymore. That's just it's all he has, which it makes sense then in that way that he says that if this doesn't work, then I would rather be dead because he's got nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't think he gets a lot of dates in New Manhattan. No, I don't think he's got a lot of people who want to take him up on that offer to laugh with no. glasses of champagne. Nope. So then later he's relaxing in his quarters. I think this is one of the few, maybe the only part where we see someone just in their socks. Like he's got his feet up. Yeah, let's think about that. Yeah, you see socks. It was very, it was jarring. Yeah, you don't usually see socks in Star Trek. No. But he kind of like, he closes his eyes and he's running baseball games in his head and you you kind of hear the the baseball in the background and the announcer and the crowd cheering. And then a few of the consoles in his quarters, like the replicator and stuff, start to zap and power down. And then a surge of lightning comes out and zaps him. Yeah. And he like he's like screaming and he's like, ah, and then the security guard that's outside his quarters hears what's happening and he tries to get in, but he can't get the door open. And finally, when it does open, it's like a very shocked looking Stubbs, who kind of just collapses into his arms. Yeah. In sickbay, Crusher examines him, and Picard does not believe that this attack was arbitrary. Stubbs wakes up, and he's like, you must protect me. And he tells Picard that he has to kill the the nanites. Yeah. So back on the bridge, Picard tells Riker to 
gamma irradiate the computer system. So that's just at the state where now he's like, it's time to put an end to this conflict because we, we can't seem to communicate with them. We're going to be dead. Like they're going to kill him or us or both. Yeah. You know what I kind of like about this scene, though, is as they are doing that and, and kind of working that out, Data is just continuing to work on his little side project of communicating with the nanites. Like he doesn't That's pay right. any mind to this. We might kill them. He's like, nope, gonna just going to keep trying this till the very last minute. And just as they're about to radi- irradiate the core, Data yeah. gets a message. Yeah. And he's like, sir, captain, because uh, they're getting a message. So Riker goes to get Stubbs, who thinks that this is a really bad idea. The idea is going to be that they are going to put the nanites into Data's body and Data will act as an avatar for the nanites. Yes. And Riker says, well, it's one sure way into the record books, doctor. <laughs> That's what he said before. So Riker's just yep. repeating him. Picard says that Stubbs will explain. He's like, listen, this is what you're going to do. You're going to apologize to them so they don't kill us. Basically, yeah. it's what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, so I think one thing Data mentions is that because Worf is like, we should not put these nanites into Data. Like that is not, that's not a good idea. Oh yeah, we're gi- we're giving them an office. Yeah. Right? And that's a really Data, good point. And, but Data says, yeah, but this is a gesture of trust. Yes. Yeah. If they even know what that is. Yeah. But like, he's like, we have already hurt them. So yeah. we should make ourselves, vul- well, I mean, they are vulnerable, but we should, you know, show that we are willing to be vulnerable with them. Data puts his hand down over like this uh, magnifying glass type machine thing. Yeah, they're in the computer core now. They're in the computer core and you see it kind of zoom in on his hand. And then you can see like these little like shiny things kind of going into his skin, which I guess are the nanites. Bread Spider puts on like robot voice. Like it's not, I can see, imagine Data, but way more, even more robotic and stiff. And he's like, I I am the nanites. And he's kind of like talking to him. He mentions that they're very strange looking. Yeah, he doesn't call them ugly bags of mostly water, but he (laughs) might as well. May as well have, yes. Yeah, so Picard is like, yeah, you know, we've met a lot of creatures and some look even stranger than us, but we try to coexist peacefully. So Picard explains that they misinterpreted the nanites' actions as an attack on the ship and that actually they did endanger this vessel. Uh, the nanites said they were just exploring. They meant no harm. As an excuse, we've often used ourselves. We're just exploring. We're just exploring. No harm. We meant no harm. So Data turns to Stubbs. Data, this is nanite data. Yeah, Data with nanites. Yeah. yeah, he's like, I was the one who was responsible for the deaths. He apologizes. He says that he explains that he was on an important mission. He was just trying to f- defend a lifetime of work. But then he kind of backs down and he's like, I'm at your mercy. Yeah, he really gets very close to trying to excuse his behavior yeah which doesn't surprise yeah. me at all <laughs> and then he, the nanites are like we don't know what at your mercy yeah, what, means. what is mercy what's this mercy what is mercy that you speak of so picard says that this conflict was started by mistakes on both sides i don't know if that's a fair thing to say but they they want to end it now and picard pledges to do anything possible to ensure their survival uh but the nanites are like well we actually don't need you anymore no you can't give us anything they, they need to get off the ship. We'll get off the ship. Yeah, we need to get out of here. Yeah, they're like, we have everything we need from here. Now we need to find another place. So then we yeah. get a captain's log. And this, I think, is another good use of the captain's log. It tells us what has happened. We, we didn't necessarily need to see this. That Stubbs has used his influence to give the nanite civilization a home planet. So they're going to... That's have, a lot of influence. Yeah, they're going to have a planet all to themselves. And they left Data's neural network. And they also helped repair the computer core in time to do this experiment so you know everybody wins everyone wins now what 
bothers me about the end of this episode is the fact that Wesley's not involved in it anymore. They were like, hey, can we talk to our creator? Thank you for giving us life. Like, Or no one talks about the fact that Wesley just created an entire civilization. We just never come back to this again of robots. Yeah. Yeah. Wesley basically like Noonien Soong'd. Uh, <laughs> like a, a high school project. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, the nanites don't ask to talk to him. He's not in that scene. Yeah, that is uh, weird, at all. Yeah. And so it's that that is a little strange to me that they that he gets no interaction with them. Yeah. The egg launches for real this time. They have that last scene of the of the cargo bay opening and them getting it out, and then we see that explosion from the neutron star. Dubs is just like working the science station like an orchestra at the back of the bridge taking in all this data i have to say that is actually a really i thought it was a really nice scene because that was something where like he was really caught up in it and he actually like he really seemed to be enjoying himself like at one point picard like calls his name and he like can't even answer because he's just like too in his his world of working that's right and it was like it was nice although he is like not a good person. I don't like him as a, you know, I wouldn't wouldn't want to spend any time with him. It was nice to to see that he was able to have that moment of yes. of enjoying himself. Like how much of the story of that success is going to be mired by the fact that he destroyed a whole bunch of sentient machines to get his research, like you know, stuff like that. Well, that's not going to be mentioned in his version of the story. I'll tell it you. It won't be in his version, but there might be some ethics reviews about what happened. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. During the research, so... Yeah. Yeah. So we get our last scene now in 10 Forward, and I, Dr. Crusher is, like, she's got this little plate in front of her that has all these brightly colored, like, green and yellow and pink things. I Is she just, like, eating candies? Is that what's happening? I mean, why not? Just a little, like, Here's looks like a little... Star Trek, you eat whatever you want. Looks like a little plate of, like, <laughs> gummy fruits. Yep. Yep. <laughs> What this is is another example of like we had some dessert left over from the catering the services for lunch break yeah. from craft services. We just threw about a plate. Like, yeah. Here, yeah. eat this. This is what's left over. So Crusher asked Guinan if if she has any children. Yes. Yeah, and if she ever had any trouble relating. To yeah, Guinan apparently has a lot of children. Yeah. And there was one who wouldn't listen to anyone. And Crusher's like, oh, well, they all go through that. And she's like, well, not in a species of listeners. And mm-hmm. she says it took him several hundred years to grow out of it. That's a long time yeah. to learn to listen. Yeah. And Guinan says a mother shapes her child in ways that she doesn't realize sometimes just by listening. And at that point, Wesley enters with a young woman. Yeah. And they join a table of other young people. Yeah, they're all wearing, wearing super, super big clothes. <laughs> like they're wearing like day glow, like neon yellow and pink and orange, except for Wesley, who is in his gray Gray, yep. gray uniform. Crusher notices that the the young woman that he's with seems to uh, really like Wesley. And then she's like, and is looking at him with incredible affection. And who is this person? And kind of goes into this kind of like <laughs> yeah, mama. No, goes the other direction. Yeah. yeah, it's like, okay, back down, back yeah. down. And the Enterprise flies away. Flies away. The, the end. end. Do you have any final thoughts? Anything we didn't, we didn't cover? This is, it's a good episode. I do like this one. I'm excited that we're in this new phase yeah. of Star Trek episodes for this season. There's a lot of really good episodes coming up. Yeah. We got Ensigns of Command for the next one. Ensigns of Command coming up next. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited too. It it's a good looking episode. Like the 
like we said, the look and feel is really, really changed. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to go into the next few. Me too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at nathannunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at FirstLinkPod, or send us an email at firstlinkpod at gmail.com to let us know whether you feel like you are living up to your childhood potential and how that makes you feel. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew. And do not feed your nanites after midnight. <laughs>